My name is Kyle Burkholder. I'm the pastor here at Covenant Church and uh, one of the elders that has the privilege of serving the church as we go about the mission that Robert has just described. And I'm excited that you're here. We're starting a brand new sermon series this week, Song of Songs. We're going to be spending four weeks in a book that most people uh, either have read, blushed at, and closed and moved on quickly from, or have wondered how something so scandalous and sexualized got into the Bible. So that is your warning that we may be using some adult terms and it's going to be a blast. So get your squirms ready, get your uncomfortable side eyes ready, just do your thing. We're going to be in it. We're excited about it. This is the next four weeks of our life. So um, I think what we're going to find as we look at the Song of Songs is that uh, it has been widely neglected for all the wrong reasons. The Song of Songs is a book that exists on two planes. The first plane is it is definitely a relational book that is uh, this kind of ongoing poetry between two lovers. And you'll see, even when we get into the text, it'll say she, and then it's her part of the poetry, and then he'll respond, it'll say he really big, it'll be his line back, and so it's this back and forth dialogue, but it's also something greater. There's a second plane that you and I can look at it through, and that's the plane of the relationship between a creator and creation, between God and humanity. And that's where uh, I think everybody is going to have an application point as we go week to week, is what does it mean to really relate in uh, the language of salvation with our God. This is really that. It's a book about love and salvation. So yes, it's about relationships and love and intimacy, uh, but it's about more than that. Since it is about relationships, love and intimacy, we also want to be wildly practical if we can with you. And so there is a value add for this series in this month. If you are in this room and you are in a dating, engaged, or marriage relationship, we have a free kind of top of the line industry standard assessment for you to take. It's called a couple's checkup. And this is the same test I use for premarital counseling. That's like a thousand questions and a million dollars. And it gives me every ounce of information I have about a couple so that I can make them fight before they get married. This is the same sort of thing, but kind of shrunk down so you can do it in 10 or 15 minutes each. And what it would do is then uh, you register and we're going to give you instructions on uh, Facebook today. You're going to get an email if you're on our list about 1130 today. It's all going to go out to you if you're not on those lists. Sign up in the info center. Say, hey, I want to get that email. Um, Or if you don't want to get the email, make sure you put in the wrong email address. We'll send it to someone else. It will send you a custom report for you and you alone. And so you will have access to 15, 20 pages of custom data as your relationship including a discussion guide that will help you kind of work through it together as a couple. And so what we want to do is make this part extremely practical. And so that's going to be coming out to you. You can be looking for that if you want access to it or you don't know how to do that. Come talk to me or anyone else around here and we will help you get there. Um, So that's the practical piece. That is on its way. Uh, And so a little background, Song of Songs. The Song of Songs in your scripture is part of five different scrolls that make up uh, the third major, major section of the Hebrew Bible. It is known as the Megalot. And the Megaloth is these five scrolls that are used for five specific things. Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. Which, for people who have not been in church their whole life, they're like, those are Bible books? Like, what are you talking I've never heard of those. No one reads out of those. So these are the five. Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. And these are each, each of these books in this important section is read uh, in full at a certain feast in the Jewish world. And this is wildly important because these are seen as these super important pieces of kind of God-inspired literature that are going to unlock something about the human condition. Song of Songs, in particular, is read at Passover. And so if you think about what Passover was about, the the rescue of the the Jewish people from slavery, the rescue and their, their salvation from bondage, and their taking into the promised land, this kind of like, whoa, this is a big thing. What they read at Passover is Song of Songs. 
which doesn't really seem to compute unless you have the kingdom eyes to go, this is about more than just a man and a woman saying sweet nothings about pomegranates and gazelles and other weird things. It's chiefly about learning how to pray and love in the context of salvation. The Song of Songs are profound poetry of salvation. They are songs of rescue. It is a song of the Exodus and an invitation to freedom. And so every year at the Passover, these are read to remind the Jewish people they've been invited into freedom. They've been invited out of slavery and their salvation on the cusp. It's not just any song. It's the best of songs. And you know this because in all the Hebrew, if you ever see something repeated, song of songs, that's an emphasis that means it's the best of that thing. So like the Holy of Holies was the holiest place. It's the holiest possible place there could be. It's the holy of holies. Or Jesus came and he said he was the king of kings. He's the kingliest king there could ever be. And this is the song of songs. This is the ultimate song of salvation. So it isn't just some like weird romantic language. It's the song of all songs that should drive us to closer intimacy with God. This song stands out among all the others. So we're going to get start reading in chapter one, verse one. The Bible says this, These are Solomon's Song of Songs. And then it says, she, to start verse two, she, this is her talking, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like a perfume or like oil poured out. No wonder the young women love you. Take me away. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. You scandalized yet? This is what we're talking about. She launches immediately as this song begins. She launches into intimacy. It's uncomfortable for many. We struggle with this in our society. We struggle with the sexualized world we live in to think that anything in this realm can be good or clean. And yet the first thing she wants to do is launch directly into that. She doesn't start with like, hey, how you doing? She says, let him kiss me. The issue for us is when we get into intimacy, the only way that you and I, because of our culture and societal balance, the only way we know how to think about intimacy is in a sexual realm. We only think of it physically. So when we think intimacy, if I were to say, you and your spouse, you and your boyfriend, you and your fiance, how, how intimate are you? You'd go, whoa, way too much information, because that can only mean one thing. When I do premarital counseling, I go, hey, have you guys been intimate? That means something. In our culture, intimacy is always equated with physicality. And yet that's not necessarily what's happening here. She is inviting physicality, but there's another plane we have to look at. There's another plane that we're looking on here. In the light of salvation, so much more than physical. Intimacy is a greater commonality. It's a oneness, a oneness, a oneness of spirit, a oneness of body, a oneness of heart, a oneness of purpose. This intimacy is the greater oneness. At our house, there's a game that we have. It's the home version of the newlywed game. Um, some of you remember the newlywed game from when it was on television. Some of you do not, but if you wanted to come to our house and play the home version of the newlywed game, it's just as silly and just as terrifying for couples because the newlywed game was actually a game that was good for laughs, uh, soaking in all kinds of euphemisms. Every question is like a trick to get you to say the wrong thing because all the game was designed to do, I'm convinced, is create fights among people for saying the wrong thing and disagreeing. And the way it would work it's really the chiefly about agreement. So the host says something really awkward and like, um, I wrote one down so I wouldn't forget because they're super awkward. The host would say, if your spouse was a puppy, what kind of puppy would he or she be? And so you're sitting there like this going, oh dear Lord. And then, and then the host has to say, I like to play the host because it gets me out of the role of having to play the game because it's super awkward. And then I would say, would he or she be? And then they give you options to make it worse. You can't just be like, I don't know, really likes... Labradors, I don't know. Would she be a lap dog? 
a rescue dog or a wiener dog. And then you're over here and you're like, what do I write? Because all of those are terrible. And then she's over there and she's guessing which one you're going to write. And you're having, you got this little whiteboard and you're like, I got to write something down. And so sometimes, I, literally in the game, sometimes I will just write, I will refuse to answer this. Because that avoids the fight that's going to happen when I say the wrong thing. Because even if you say the right thing, but for the wrong reason, like, why would you say that? And you say why you would say that? They're like, this is terrible. We need to have a talk. And so you start playing the game with like eight, eight couples and you finish with three and everybody else is in other rooms just fighting. That's the game. It's designed to make a laugh. It's designed to have kind of a a fun time, get to know you a little bit. One time we had uh, some friends' parents in town. We were playing with some couples, and this one couple had their parents in from uh, their living in Cleveland, actually. And they were down in Texas, and they said, well, we'll just, we'll do whatever you guys do. And somebody said, we should play the newlywed game. And I was like, yeah, but they're like a thousand years old, so this isn't going to (laughs) work. They proceeded to school us so hard, every answer, they were exactly right. The answer behind the answer, the why I wrote the answer, oh, rescue dog, definitely. Oh, I knew she would say that because 33 years ago when we were here, we saw, and they had all their answers. It's like they knew all the questions in advance. They got every single one right. And on the inside of the the board of every game we have, we write who won, like, so we can keep a record because that seems to matter for pride, right? And and they have one, and it's like in highlight with Sharpie going, no one will ever top this. It's the greatest performance in the history of mankind. And we left like, would you counsel all of us? And what they had was not like secret uh, knowledge of the questions. They had incredible intimacy. They knew each other inside and out. They had a oneness of mind, a oneness of spirit, that even when the questions were weird and designed to trap them, they both thought about them the exact same way. They smoked us all. So the, the text starts with kiss me. The actual first word in the Hebrew is yisakeni, it's kiss me. Kiss me is how they start. It's a passionate appeal from the outset for intimacy. She doesn't want to talk theology. She doesn't want to get on committees and think about more how do we paint the church walls better. She doesn't want to talk about apologetics and maybe we could build a good argument for how this intimacy could be good. She says, kiss me. Eugene Peterson says it this way. He says, life to be meaningful must be joined. Intimacy is a requirement of wholeness. Life to be meaningful must be joined. We have a community group table out there in the foyer. Some people are feeling unknown, feeling a little bit like isolated, feeling a little lonely. Maybe step one is, hey, I walk up and I go, I'm willing to be a little bit vulnerable because apparently for my life to have meaning, I have to find someone to join it to and may not be getting married this year, but I could be in this group. Or maybe my spouse doesn't want to come, but I need more intimacy in my life. And so I'm willing to be in. Maybe that's why that's there today. It's because someone's in here going, gosh, I feel like kind of isolated. I don't have a lot of intimacy in my life. Step one. What we all know to be true is we were made for something larger. That's that hole in us. When we lack that, when we lack that wholeness, it's because we realize we were made for something larger than ourselves. So this book about love and salvation starts with a kiss. As if intimacy starts everything in a spiritual sense. This is not good dating advice. Don't start your dating advice with a kiss. Like, let's kiss and see where we go from here. Bad advice. But spiritual advice, it might be great advice. That intimacy is the gateway to everything else. It's a precursor for all the things that will tumble out of that relationship later. When a couple comes into my office to talk about their, their marriage, if it's struggling or they've hit a funk or they're in a lull or they're in a rut and they just go, you know, we just feel like we've grown apart. The first question I will ask is how often are you together? Well, what do you mean? I'm like, well, 
You've got kids that are this age, and you seem to be apart a lot, and you work late hours, and you work early hours, and so you miss each other, and you do that high five as you put the kids to bed, and they'll see you again in the morning. And a few weeks go by, and you think that maybe vacation's going to solve it, but you just feel distant, right? And they go, gosh, yeah, that's it. And I say, well, what's missing is intimacy. And it's hard to be intimate without being proximate, meaning it's hard to be intimate without being close to each other. If you don't sit and have dinner together every once in a while, you're going to feel distant because so many things have happened between then and now that I don't even know who you are, where you are. Who is this new person at work you're talking about? This is part of the digital difficulty we live with is the loneliness epidemic we face is largely because we've replaced physical proximity with a digital approximation. We've replaced physical proximity with a digital approximation. And so while we don't spend any time with other humans, we, we can look in like through this digital window on all kinds of people. We can scroll through their lives. We can see what's happening in their life. We can kind of think we know what's going on with them. But if we're not in the room together, we don't actually know anything. We don't have body language or eye contact. We don't have a physical touch or unspoken words. There's no hints. There's no nods. There's no winks. There's no nothing. And so the digital approximation falls flat for us because no amount of emojis and likes and strings of text will ever quite get us there. It's an approximation. Proximity, approximation. Same root word. Proximity is we're close to each other. Approximation means it's kind of close. It's kind of like that. It's sort of the same. And yet everybody would say, if I told you you will make approximately a certain amount of money, that doesn't help you set a budget. You need to know how much. If you had an heirloom and I said, it's uh, worth approximately this, give or take 15 or 20%, you would go, not really helpful. And yet in life, we're willing to approximate our proximity because it's just easier, because it's cleaner, because it's convenient, and because I can scroll by myself and not bother anybody. And yet what we know to be true is it's insufficient. It'll never get us where it's supposed to go. Digital life leads to a false intimacy, which leads to real despondency and real loneliness. And she says, kiss me. Don't like my post. Don't Snapchat me later. Kiss me. Be close. She says, for your love is better than wine. Your love is more delightful than wine. So kiss me is what intimacy is, but then how it happens is, is represented by wine in the, in the poetry. Wine represents conviviality, a liveliness, a togetherness with others. There's this deep con life. Life is viviality, and this con means with conviviality. And that's the most perfect word. Sometimes I'm like, why would I put a word in there that I have to explain? Because there's no more perfect word. You and I, what we, want, what we want more than anything is conviviality. We want life with others. And when we lack that, we lack something profound. But what you really want at the depth of your soul is life, real, true life with others. And that's represented by the wine, the warmth of a glass of wine that brings cheeks to a rosy glow, that removes the barriers of conversation and takes the shy person and, and enters them into fellowship with someone else. Wine temporarily frees people from inwardness and it liberates speech Wine creates conviviality. It enters somebody into life with another. Too much wine obviously dips into a dangerous area. But wine here is being used as an illustrative device that bridges the differences and banishes isolation. Wine is this illustrative device. It bridges differences and it banishes isolation. Love does permanently what wine does temporarily. When you look at this passage and you see it using wine, your love is better than wine. What it's saying is love does permanently what wine does temporarily. Love does deeply what wine does on the surface. Love does wholly what wine only does partially. This is the picture we're given of what love is. This is the intimacy that we are longing for. The intimacy you and I want is better than the temporary 
conviviality that comes with a drink with friends. It's something deeper and more whole than that. If wine or a digital approximation of life were enough, you would not be here this morning. This requires effort, just being in a building with other people. You have to get up and you have to actually put on appropriate clothing. You might comb your hair or maybe even brush your teeth, and then you have to sit within arm's reach of somebody you don't even know. Did I wear the right thing? Who are you people? They're asking me to sign up for stuff. This is a whole big hassle. Why do you do this? We do this because what we desire more than anything else is conviviality. We want to be in with others. Intimacy is not found in the screen. There's church online. You can go to church online live right now from this region. There's no shortage of churches that now have church online. Watch in your PJs, from your couch, with your ice cream, 9 a.m. Nobody knows. Not going to sign up for anything. You don't have to do anything. You just sit there and watch the full worship set with fog lights and all kinds of crazy things. An incredible preacher that's not going to make you uncomfortable by talking about wine and intimacy. You could do that but you're here because something in you is driven to people and relationships. Something in you is driven to intimacy with others. There's a reason we don't have church online. We could put a camera right there. It would take us about 20 minutes. Greg says it would take us about two weeks, but just 20 minutes. We could stream the thing. We could then post it later. We could have Tuesday night live online church. We could have chat rooms for community and none of it would be real because it's not who we are, because it's not what you were made for. And that might be a great gateway to get you into real relationship with people, but that's not church. Church is people. That's not life. Life is people. That's not vitality. Vitality requires us together. She says, your name is like perfume poured out. Your name is like perfume poured out, like oil the, the words for name and oil, it's Hebrew wordplay. They kind of like sound the same as shemen and shem. And so she's saying that your name and the oil are one and the same. That when I speak your name, it's because you're close to me. Because oil, oil was only used in proximity. We're, we're overwhelmed. Think about it this way. We're overwhelmed by sights and smells. It triggers things in us from our past. You probably remember the perfume your mother wore. You probably remember the aftershave of your grandfather. There's things that just trigger you. When you smell that, you go, oh, I know what that is. When my wife and I started dating, she, she had some weird stuff going on. She had a big West Texas accent that we had to break her of pretty quickly because she said strange things I didn't understand. Like, you want to go eat tomorrow night? I would love that. That's a great idea. And I'd be like, that's not okay. We're going to stop that. <laughs> okay, I will if I can. And I'm like, nope, again, if anybody asks, you don't know English. Okay. And so we'd be like at the movies and I would do the thing you're supposed to do with the good boyfriend or the good fiance and I would pretend to yawn because it sure is tiring to go to the movies, isn't it? And so you got my arm around her and she would do the weirdest thing on earth. She would smell my armpit. Like aggressively smell my armpit. She's not in here. I was like, can you say without an accent why you did that? <laughs> and she said, since I was a little girl, I just loved the smell of my dad's deodorant. And it's like he would come home from work and I'd hug him and I was just about this size and I'd hug him right in that spot. And she goes, I just love it. And I said, that's really weird. <laughs> Have at it. <laughs> you know? Go to town. Whatever works, guys, just go with it. 
Smells don't matter outside of proximity. Smells don't matter outside of proximity. Why is there a bakery in the grocery store? They have an aisle of bread that was baked two days ago, perfectly packaged and sliced. Why is there a bakery? Why do they have fried chicken and a pizza place? Why are there samples? Who, who, who are the Costco people here? Who are the Costco? Just out yourself, Costco people. Why is there a circus at Costco every single time you go in and they're just throwing food at you through the aisles? More samples, sir? Die-free, GMO, 65 of these for a dollar. And, like, and what do you do? You take a bite. Why do you take a bite? Look at this free. I want to... They're not stupid. They're not giving stuff away here. Psychologically, this is proven science right here. This is like first grade science. They are waking up your consumerist mind. They are inviting you in to start smelling and tasting. They're, they're tapping into your primordial self and they're going, look, you got a taste of the meat. Do you want some more meat? And that's how you end up with 48 packs of Hot Pockets in your outside freezer in the garage that you had to buy because you buy too much stuff at Costco. Because they gave you like some free crackers and a gummy or something and you were like, I need more stuff. Thor has been awakened and you're just putting stuff in the cart. You don't know why. And it just keeps coming in. And that's why, that's why when you walk into Kroger, that's why the most expensive area of the meat is right next to the bakery because the bakery, you smell fresh bread. And even if you're not hungry, what do you do? You go, gosh, that smells really good. Yeah, I think I'll have eight ribeyes. I don't know. I live alone. What are you going to do? And you just can't help it. You get hungry. It stirs something in you. Smell does this. It requires proximity though. And oil in the Old Testament, oil in the days of Jesus even, oil was a proximity thing. When you walked into a smelly house in a non-hygienic culture that was super hot and nobody had good deodorant because it didn't exist and feet aren't being washed and it's dusty outside and it's 110 and everybody smells, oil was placed above your head so that when you smelled anything, you smelled that family's oil. It was an invitation to both have two things happen. One, to be invited into somebody's personal space and their, their proximity, your name is like oil. The second is it covered your own stink. And the oil was a covering for you. And so everybody got to enjoy each other's presence without dealing with each other's stench. But you can't provide a covering for someone if you aren't close to them. There's no oil if you're not in the home. You can't cover another person if you don't know them personally. You cannot apply it at a distance. It is not available in a digital form Personal presence is required to be close with people and with God. People come to me and they say, I just feel like God is really distant. To which, unfortunately for you, the answer is always, well, he's unchanging. But he might not be in your Facebook feed right now. And so if you put that away for a while, maybe you'd find him. But if you're not proximate, if you're not in the room, there's no covering. There's no oil if you're not in the room. And so we have to sit with God for long enough that we feel his presence, that we feel his embrace, that we can be and hear his voice. And when people feel distant, we wonder why we feel distant. And if you would do a time audit and you look at your calendar, you'd go, how much of my day do I spend with God? And how much do I spend chasing something else entirely? And I wonder why he feels far away. True intimacy requires deep vulnerability. She says, let the king bring me into his chambers. Let the king bring me into his chamber. She is ready to be physically one with him. Sex is so powerful because it is so intimate. It is intimate because it is vulnerable. It is vulnerable because it is proximate. Think about this. Sex is powerful because it is intimate. It is so deeply personal. But it's only intimate because it's vulnerable. Because it's all of me putting myself forward for all of you. 
but it's only vulnerable because it's proximate, because if we are in that space together, you now have the right to reject me in my presence in a way that you can't do via a screen or a text or anything else. And the power of it comes from that intimacy. And so when we lack any of these ingredients, that's when we feel the shame of sex. That's when we feel like it's meaningless. That's when it's unsatisfying. That's when, whether you're 14 or 24 or 84, and you're chasing these things, if it lacks this heart connection intimacy, if it lacks that, it feels empty. And you go, why is this thing that was supposed to be so powerful leaving me feeling so empty? because it was designed to be used in a certain way, in a certain relationship, in a certain context, and outside of that, it's got no power. There's nothing more physically vulnerable than standing before another person without clothing to hide the places we are ashamed of. There's no digital equivalent for that. It is all there for another to see. So to engage in that space is the most intimate form of conviviality we know. This is me and my life and my fullness for you. You have to be vulnerable enough to expose what is normally hidden. Intimacy requires that level of vulnerability. And that's why rejection in that space feels so personal. Because what someone is essentially saying is, I've seen the real you and I don't think so. Good sex has nothing to do with any of the things you might Google to spice up your love life. Good sex communicates one thing and one thing alone. It says no matter your secret shames, what is hidden, or what you don't love about yourself, you are wholly acceptable to me. If that's the message you get across in physical intimacy, you're doing it right. If that's not the message you're getting across with physical intimacy, you're doing it wrong. No matter what you don't like about yourself, no matter the things you'd like to hide, no matter the things that make you want to turn the lights off, you are wholly acceptable to me. You are acceptable, you are approved, and we can join our lives together. Our souls long to hear that. That's a deep spiritual thing. We long, when we wake up in the morning, we long for someone to know us truly and still love us. For someone to know who we are, know all of our flaws, know what we're tucking in and hiding behind, know why we have a lifetime subscription to Spanx so we can just bring it in a little tighter. And we want someone to look at us without all the junk we add and to say, I love you just like you are. You're wholly acceptable to me. And on a spiritual level, that is what the deepest desire of every single soul in this room is. If there's somebody to go look at all my shame and my sin and my pain and my history and every hurt and everything I've done, the things I'm not proud of, the things I'm hiding from everyone, the things I wish I could bury, but I can't quite outrun them. And here they all are. And God looks at us and he goes, you're wholly acceptable. You're beautiful. You're remarkable. I approve. I accept. I will cover you with my grace and you will be everything you've ever needed to be for me, just like you are. In your most vulnerable state, I approve. Intimacy requires deep vulnerability, though we don't get to that place when we hide our junk still because we know that they love us not for who we are but for the mask we wear to make sure they like us. So with God, we hide our junk and we keep our sin secret and we don't confess and we hope no one sees and we try to present our best self and God goes, that's not what I want. I didn't die for the best version of you. I died for you. It requires deep trust. It requires Jesus to meet us where we are, but he's done that work already. 
inviting us to know him personally and intimately. And so when we were at our most vulnerable, when we had nothing left to hide our shame, Jesus engaged. And Jesus calls us worthy and holy and approved and acceptable. Jesus gets vulnerable before we ever have to to meet us where we are. He becomes human like us. He gets proximate in our space. He gives his life to cover ours with grace. In our nakedness and our shame, Jesus gives his very life to become our covering. It is not lost on any of us that Jesus, when he begins to sweat blood over what is about to happen to him, is standing next to the oil press. His most precious blood is being pressed out of him. It's the oil that will cover each and every one of us. He loves you so much. It's what you long to hear. It's all I deal with every day of the week. It's people desperate to hear that they are loved for who they are, desperate to be found acceptable and holy. And Jesus says, I have already deemed you so. That's what the cross was about. You are already wholly acceptable to me. His hand is out. He's waiting for us to respond to his vow of intimacy. His deep vulnerability is on display for us, and it is up to us to put away all of the shame and put away all of the masks and to go, here I am, it's all of me. And to allow him to go, this is the person I died for. In physical proximity to his creation, Jesus creates the greatest intimacy ever known. Jesus creates a love like no other, the thing that in the bottom of your soul you want more than anything. How? How does Jesus create this love? John chapter 10, Jesus says this. He says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Where does my love come from? What is my love shown in? Where do you feel the love that I'm here to offer in my vulnerability, in my proximity, in my intimacy with you? What is the thing that caps it all off? What is the thing that makes it so ridiculously incredible that you cannot resist me anymore? It's sacrifice. That he would love you enough to lay his life down. That intimacy is found in vulnerability and proximity, but it is made perfect in Jesus' sacrifice. There is no greater love than when someone is willing to lay their life down for another where we lose ourselves for the sake of another, that's the love we all dream of on earth. Someone would love me so much they would give their life to see me flourish. Jesus lost himself to find you. Are you longing to stand at your most vulnerable and feel wholly acceptable? In the pit of your soul, does it almost seem like that would be impossible? Reality today is this. He knows you inside and out. And he chose you. And if Eugene Peterson is right, then life must be meaningful. In order to be meaningful, it must be joined. Jesus gave his life that you might join him on this journey. He's reached out, and his invitation today is you would release your shame and your hurt and allow him to call the real you holy and beautiful and approved and accepted. The invitation from Jesus is an invitation to rescue into a song like no other. It's an invitation into exodus. It's an invitation into salvation. It's an invitation into being fully known and fully loved. Invitation to leave the shame that comes with the slavery of sin and to accept the love that comes with relationship with him. So will you accept that today? Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, the song that you sing over us is astounding. Lord, the way that you have loved us, the way that you accept us, even when we feel unacceptable, when we feel dirty and used, when we feel lost and broken, you tell us that it is you who deems us whole again. Father, that is what we long for. So my prayer this morning is sort of a personal prayer that I hope can be a prayer for every heart in here. Maybe the words I pray, Lord, would be words that each of us would own. God, we accept your offer. Whether we've walked with you for decades or we're still checking it out, Lord, we want to accept this offer. We want to enter into this sort of love, this unimaginable acceptance and approval. Father, we want to accept the invitation into deep relationship. We want to accept the invitation into true intimacy. Lord, we recognize that it it comes at a great cost, but the cost is on Jesus. And he's already paid. So Lord, we show up with nothing. And somehow you still say, that's all you need of us. Lord, take our lives, steal away our shame. Father, we long to be approved. So we're back in your presence to be approved by you today. Thank you for sending Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.